0: I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly, and today I'm in Matataa in Bay of Plenty. It's one of those really pretty little coastal towns where you might stop for an ice cream. There's a beautiful big reserve in sand dunes. Behind it is this big backdrop of hills with native bush. But something happened in 2005 that changed this town forever.
1: A landslide of rock, wood and mud came
0: thundering through. The
2: whole neighbourhood just filled up with mud and debris. Didn't know where it came from. I was thinking, oh my God, what is that? He said, get in the truck,
3: because he knew it was bad. 34 properties, including 16 homes, have been identified as so prone to debris and heavy flooding that the District Council's own papers warn of, and I quote, loss of life risk.
0: So today the detail is looking at what happened to this town and the people here after that massive landslide and how in the end the council decided to go with a managed retreat and what can be learned from that very fraught and
1: drawn-out process. You can't anticipate people's connection to the land and the house and how powerful that is, you know, and how incredibly upsetting it can be to, to be told that you have to leave there. So, you know, the, it, it is definitely a traumatic process and I wouldn't want anybody to treat it lightly.
0: That stuff's Nikki MacDonald, who's written many stories about Matata. It's the only time a managed retreat has happened in New Zealand. But now it's being looked at as an option for coastal towns at greatest risk from sea level rise and other flood-prone areas.
3: I'm Geoff Farrell, Manager of Strategic Projects at the Whakatane District Council.
0: OK, and Jeff, we are on Clem Elliott Drive in Matata. We're standing right outside a house that's surrounded by high fencing and signs saying danger, no entry construction site. Tell me about this place.
3: Well, this is the last of the houses in the Awatariki High Debris Flow Risk Area, which is being, um, this one's being demolished. The majority of the houses, there were 16 houses and 34 properties in total. Uh, But of the 16, only two have had to be demolished. The rest have been relocated, either in part or in full, because that was one of the sort of principles we wanted to pursue was, you know, to try and uh, recycle as much of it as possible.
0: Managed retreat even, how, how do you
3: describe that? Well, I think it's used quite frequently internationally, and, and particularly around natural hazards and, and relocating people out of harm's way. And that's really what it's about, is, is that you do that in a managed way, rather than sort of having ad hoc, isolated instances, that actually there's a, a coordinated approach. What we tried to do is say, could we reduce the risk in other ways? And, yeah, there are, you know, early warning systems are very common for natural hazard risk reduction, mm. where they get people out of harm's way, but the properties are still at risk. Um, but in our situation here, with the catchment so close behind us, when an event initiates in, in that upper catchment, it's only three minutes to five minutes before it impacts on the built environment where we're standing. and And people just don't have time to respond to a warning and get out. And so, in effect, we were left with um, managed retreat, really, as the only viable option left.
0: Now, um, what what is interesting on this site here, Geoff, there are some massive boulders here. Were they some of the boulders that came down in that huge landslide?
3: Yes. So the, the, the boulders we're looking at are probably, I don't know, two metres plus in diameter, aren't they? Mm. And, yeah, they came down on the 18th of May 2005 and we had quite a lot of rain. I think it was about 390-odd millimetres of rain over 24 hours and 95 millimetres in an hour. And so what that did was um, the ground was saturated. Yeah. And if you look behind us, you can see the hills and the catchment. In there, there's a gully that stretches back, uh, which is the catchment for the Awatariki stream and there are a number of tributaries and you can see how steep the land is and the gullies themselves are very steep and quite confined so when we had all that rain it caused landslides on the sides of the gullies and they came down and basically liquefied at the bottom of each of the tributaries they're, they're full of silts and boulders and so they're highly erosive and because of the steepness they're moving really quickly, mm. and and they have a consistency of wet concrete, and so um, the biggest boulder actually mobilised in the in the uh, catchment was seven metres diameter, mm. and there was three surges in this event in two thousand and five, and the front face of the surge has three or four boulders high, so it's a massive torrent of boulders that are exiting the catchment at you know at thirty kilometres per hour, which you just can't run away from. No. And it ended up depositing 300,000 cubic metres of debris on this fan head here that we're standing on.
2: Climbed into the ceiling of a 10-foot stud villa because it seemed like the safest place to be at the time. And we floated around in that house for three and a half hours on the night, just floating, thinking, shit, I hope we're not going to die. Boulders, trees, the size of... Oh, just amazing, the size of things. Bashing around underneath the
3: house. When it happened, the boulders came down and banked up against the railway bridge at the base of the escarpment, which runs across the escarpment face. And then the pressure behind there forced the bridge to give way, and the western end of the bridge swung out, and that released a lot of the boulders to the western end of the fan. And um, and about, I don't know, a couple of hundred metres up that way, I guess.
2: Eventually, my house went into the gap between the house and shed in front and stopped moving. So we my husband pushed some of the wall out and we jumped into the neighbour's house because his house was stationary and yeah looking out the
0: windows just couldn't recognise my neighbourhood. Everybody had to get out of their homes and then you you started the process of working out what what to do next in terms of the future of the properties?
3: Yes, well I think the the first focus was really because there was five catchments that were affected at Matata and the council was able to develop engineering solutions for four of the five that enabled people to continue to live there and that was what the property owners wanted as well and and so they made representations to the council to develop an engineering solution. Um, Because this was the biggest catchment with the biggest amount of debris that came through uh, it was left to the last of the catchments to work out wh- what to do, basically, um, and how the risk could be reduced through building something. And so a lot of options were considered, including managed retreat at the time. But I think the councillors were, were swayed by the residents' desire to continue to live here, because mm-hmm. on a nice day, it's a beautiful place. It's really beautiful, yeah. And um, But it took seven years from the event to work through a range of engineering solutions and do the mitigation work and the other catchments uh, to get to the point where the council was advised by its engineers that there was no viable engineering solution. And that was at the end of 2012.
0: That's right, seven years to reach the decision that nothing could be built to keep the residents and their homes safe. In that time, the council had consulted experts and gone to the then Ministry of Building and Housing for its legal advice. And remember, there was no rule book for
1: this. Here's stuff's Nicky MacDonald again. That was the key problem, I suppose, was the fact that they tried to mitigate. So I think if you talk to any of the residents and also the council now, they would all agree that they should have left. In 2005. You mean the home mode sort of... Yes, so the residents have said to me, look, honestly, we'd have been reluctant, but we would have gone. Whereas what happened was the council, you know, with good con- intentions, obviously, tried to come up with a mitigation solution. So they tried to come up with a way to hold back the tide, if you like, so that if it did happen again, it wouldn't affect the properties. So, you know, already you've had seven years of kind of limbo and then people were told yes well we're definitely going to come up with a solution to protect your property so you know you can go back so they've you know reinvested their insurance money they've got their bright shiny new houses and their beautiful coastal paradise and then suddenly the council turns around and says yeah actually um now we can't do that so um we have to look at what happens now So that was 2012. Exactly. So, I mean, in terms of why the process was so drawn out and why it's been so traumatic, I think, you know, I would split it into two parts. And the the point is that, A, you've got those seven years of trying to find a solution. And then once you hit the end of that process in 2012 and you start talking about managed retreat, then you've got all the horrendous process of, managed retreat. Because it hasn't really been done before in New Zealand. No and that was the problem here was that you know you've got this tiny council with a city of a population of about 37,000 that's effectively trying to write the rules for a nationally unprecedented process. So you know to be fair to the council they had a pretty hard job. And and obviously that's why residents say this is a model of what not to do. Yeah you know, they there are a bunch of lessons here i mean the first i think is that you need to be thinking much earlier in the process so you need to be thinking after an event um, whether or not you should be allowing people to build back or better still you need to be thinking before an event and one of the residents um, in one of the very first interviews that i did this was um rick wally said they did it to us not with us And I think that that's really key in terms of what happened at Matata is that the residents didn't feel like they were, that they had any say, that they had any kind of element of control over the whole process. And what that meant was that that put them in fight mode, I suppose. And so their decision was to to oppose the process, which made the whole thing very stressful, I guess, for, for everybody. And what's what's important and what um the council will say is that this is not kind of directly analogous to the climate change kind of managed retreats that we might be talking about more um in the future because in this case they didn't have the luxury of time Mm. so it was it's not related to, to climate change it's related to a um a natural hazard and once they'd identified it as quote unquote dangerous you know they had to take action so they had to effectively get them out. So you didn't have the um, option of, I guess, foreseeing this problem um, and talking about it in advance of the event. But I think that would have, you know, in terms of lessons, that would make a huge difference if councils can work with communities um, who are in potentially at risk areas before a major event happens to decide collectively, well, what are going to be the trigger points what are the next steps, what does the community want? Um, Because I think then you have a collective process and that would have really changed the way that the residents felt about the whole process. So it's 2013 and the council takes a different
0: tack, a planning approach where it creates a natural hazard risk management framework.
3: The one that we were referred to by international experts was the Australian Geomechanics Society for Landslide Risk Management, which was well accepted internationally as a best practice document. Because I think the important thing is, you know, when you're looking at letting people remain, you've got to be confident that it is safe for them to remain there. And so um, we didn't have a lot of data around how often this happens and could there be bigger events. And the valuable information came from local tangata whenua who had intergenerational knowledge um, of previous events, and so we were able to identify that there had been previous events, some bigger than the 2005 event. And as we worked through the risk assessment exercise, we were able to um, sort of have an idea of when you factor in climate change effects, which would be increased storm events particularly um, in this area, that the frequency will likely increase, which again increases the risk. Mm. Uh, And so the the result of the risk assessment was that it was very high internationally in terms of loss of life risk, and that's what this programme is based on, is protecting loss of life. Uh, And then we we were faced with a situation of what to do, because as you said, there was no planning framework in place, no Mm. guidance, no documents nationally.
0: With that high-risk data in hand, the Council got further advice from the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, which validated its own belief that building on the land was not appropriate. Around the same time, the Bay of Plenty Regional Council changed its natural hazard policy, meaning risk had to be taken into account.
3: And so that placed an obligation on the council that it had to do something. It couldn't just do nothing and, and let people elect themselves to whether to stay or not. And and so with that in mind, we then proceeded through and had developed up a managed retreat proposal that we then took to regional council and government to try and secure some funding.
0: Could anything have been done better to make it, you know, less traumatic for the residents?
3: Uh, yeah, I think there are definitely things could be done a lot better than what we did. You know, 17 years from the time of the event to now, and, and the last house, as you can see, we've just acquired, um, isn't reasonable you know it's not a reasonable time period for people to be subjected to uncertainty Mm -hmm. stress about another event happening while they're still living here uncertainty about funding packages and so you know what we had to address was that there was no formal risk management policy in place and until 2017 there was no formal funding framework in place there was no guidance that existed around roles, responsibilities, processes or procedures on how to do it. Um, there was no legislative clarity either around managing existing use from natural hazards, which was a, which was a bone of contention by many. Mm. And we also, there was some resistance from some of the residents, some of the property owners here, who had, particularly those that had rebuilt. Um, they felt betrayed by the council. Um, and didn't appreciate that actually some of the decision-making was beyond the council's ability to control, but we were the ones left to implement it. And although the majority of people were very supportive and thankful that we were actually able to deliver them a solution that enabled them to move on, there was a minority that were quite vocal in, in their in their views um, mm. and attracted a bit of media attention.
0: If a council came to you and said, we need to look at managed retreat." Do you think it's still a good option?
3: Yes, I do think it's a good option in some cases, but not all cases. Um, And I think the first thing really is when you're faced with a situation that's responsive to an event, that you don't rush in and promise things, you know, without actually understanding, you know, a bit more information about the hazard itself and how well you can manage the risk. Um, for us, it's a life safety issue here, and that context is quite different to, say, sea level rise, which will happen you know, over generations potentially. Mm. But I think there are a few key points from the process that you know, I would sort of encourage others, and, and some councils have contacted me you know, reasonably regularly for some for views about how to do certain aspects of it. Yeah. And I think the first is, is that it needs to be people first orientation. Um, Some of the residents here felt that it wasn't a people-first one, but others did, and that's just what you have to work your way through, really. So I think, therefore, you need a really structured and clear policy framework in place, very clear. Um, When you're doing the risk assessment, you need a credible methodology that people can um, buy into. Uh, The risk assessment itself needs to be robust. There needs to be some common understanding from Not just the residents and and the council, but government and regional councils about what levels of risk are tolerable, intolerable, or or acceptable. And I think um, there needs to be a shared understanding at the community level about individual and collective risk. You know, at what point um, is it unreasonable for a person to stay and put members of the community at risk trying to rescue them? I think if you're setting up a program, you need to have strong QA processes. With some independent validation of, of how the project is going.
0: QA is.
3: Quality assurance, I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Everyone's got to be confident that the process is fair, it's equitable, and, and that there's no um, bias being applied. Mm. And, and when you're acquiring property, you, there needs to be, again, a fair, transparent process. Um, and the same with. When you're doing settlement arrangements, you need to be flexible, you know. Like we varied the deposits we paid for people to allow them to put deposits on other properties that they wanted to buy and staggered time frames to meet their needs rather than just being hard and fast on us, here's the time frame you're in or out, basically. Yeah. Another key element is making sure there's sufficient funding available and that the funding itself actually carries through amongst the funding partners to the end of the program. So when you do have inflationary uh, issues impacting on the overall budget that there's still room for some discussion about a top-up to the budget. Um, and I think the last thing really is to be very clear about what's the end use of the land that you're acquiring. Um, some people here felt the council was buying it to sell it to developer to build hotels, you know, um, but that just wasn't the case at all. And I think if we'd been clear at the front end that we were going to merge all of the titles into one title and it would be used um, as a reserve to link to the coastal reserve behind us, then I think that would have maybe uh, um, alleviated some of the concerns that surfaced.
0: Nikki McDonald says many of the residents affected by the managed retreat have left Matata. Some did not want to stay in the town, others could not afford to. And in terms of the rights of residents and future managed retreats?
1: That's a really difficult one because I'm not sure that we know yet really still what the residents' rights are because they wanted to go to the Environment Court to test whether it was actually legal to use the RMA to extinguish their existing use rights, which is the the mechanism that was used. Um, But because that never actually went to court, we still don't know, we still haven't tested that idea, that may become redundant if there is a new Climate Change Adaptation Act that specifies a new mandatory process. And then another interesting question that came up at Matata, which they didn't end up enforcing, but was that they tried to introduce a, a discounted valuation for people who had moved in since I think it was 2013, so the idea being uh, you know, by that stage you should have known the risk, therefore you should get a lesser value because A, maybe you paid less for your property because the risk was known, and B, you don't want to create this, they call it moral hazard, the idea that people can keep buying in risky areas and expect to be bailed out. And so I think that's going to be a really interesting discussion you know how do you decide when a coastal home buyer for example should have known what the risk was and therefore should be penalized for that and who decides what
0: stands out for you f- from the story which has been so drawn out and you've done
1: so many stories about it yeah i mean what stands out to me really is just the extraordinary human toll you know the awful emotional and physical impact on these people. It's just these incredibly sad stories of people whose last good years were stolen from them, really. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly.
0: The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom 4RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Nikki McDonald and Jeff Farrell. Ka kite anō.